You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In this episode of the Grace Saves All podcast, what I want to do is present to you the audio from the conversation I had, the open table faith conversation I had at First Christian Church in Tyler, Texas. And you can find the video of this by searching online for open table faith at First Christian Church in Tyler, Texas. So enjoy the audio of the conversation. This was me visiting with about six members of First Christian Church in Tyler, Texas. And we're talking about Christian universalism and grace and how that relates to our walk in the Christian faith. Hope you enjoy. Hello, wanderers. Hello, seekers, misfits, friends, including the ones we haven't met yet. I'm Reverend Ginger Brandt, and this is the first ever Table Talks from a group of friends in Tyler, Texas, known as Open Table Faith. However it is that you found us, we think it is exactly right that you have. We're about to get to ask some very big questions. Like, is God one of the good guys or the bad guys? How much doubt is allowed and how much belief do we really need? What is God up to with us human beings? If we believe in a God at all, do we think that God is bringing some of us into an eternal good afterlife? And what about the others of us? What do we think about the others of us? What is God's big plan, grand idea for where it's all going? We are about to question the end game. And to let you know just why on earth we'd want to do a thing like that, I introduce you to Reverend Chris Pulliam. All right, everyone, welcome to Open Table Faith, our table talks. Why open table? Well, because we think an open table is representative of the wide open table uh, that is God's kingdom. So through these talks uh, and events in the future, we hope this becomes a safe place for us to talk about real stuff, real uh, hard things, discussions about uh, questions of faith, questions about God, and the whole thing. So um, I know there are so I know so many people who are kind of stuck in a decision between buying into the whole, uh, you know, accepting the whole party line of the church they grew up in or walking away from faith or from God. So tonight, let's get unstuck. Is that a word? Is unstuck? Let's get unstuck tonight, all right? So tonight we've gathered a group of people who will serve as a a round table of discussion, and we've invited to be with us uh, my friend of 30 plus years, Reverend Dr. David Artman, who uh, is a minister with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Uh, David and I met in seminary years ago and had the joy of overlapping in ministry at a church years ago. So David is the author of a book entitled and the host of a podcast entitled Grace Saves All. 
And so we here at Open Table Faith felt like he would be the perfect person to help us kick off our first uh, event together. Uh, so David tells the story about how he loves to ask this question of people, just random people he comes to box. So how do you think all of this is going to turn out? To which people usually respond, well, well how what's going to turn out? To which he says, you know, life and death and all that. And as you can imagine, the answers he gets to those questions leads him into some really interesting discussions and conversations. And those discussions have led him to the ministry he has today. So, David, thank you for being with us. So you may have heard, as I have, that at all times the church or Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. You know, which is true. But it's also true that at all times, the church, Christianity, is only one generation away from renewal. And we choose renewal. And we invite you to take a seat at this open table. So I'll turn it back to you now, Ginger. Take it away. <laughs> All right, so the people in the room already know these ground rules, but just so you know too, this is neither debate um, nor argument. We are all friends here. We are opening up to one another and to you, talking to an expert. This is Reverend David Artman right beside me, um, who's also friend to us. We're going to affirm and both question each other, but we're going to model how to do all of that agreeably, partly because that is our faith tradition partly because, because we believe questions are okay. Sometimes we'll wrestle with something and not reach an absolute conclusion. We think that's fine too. And you might need to know that's fine too. Our end goal is not that any person or, or um, any, anyone even watching changes a core belief about salvation, about heaven or hell, hell or your own thoughts on the end game. Our goals are twofold, that people who are already changing, whose faith is shifting, maybe without their permission, just feel less alone in the journey. And that maybe see a way forward where faith can expand and shift, not die, but grow and change. Next, our goal is that some viewers might wanna think about how they think through the big God-centered questions. How do we hold the faith that we've been handed and still make space for the faith we want to grab? What is it that we're reaching for? I'm lucky enough to be moderator and MC for the conversation tonight, which is going to unfold in these parts. In this order, this is your signpost for what's ahead. Our six panelists will each ask a question of our resident expert here. After the last question, all the panelists will have a moment to respond to each other. Then, nearing the end, we'll bring up your comments and questions left for us online. We sure hope as you watch live, um, you type some of those in. But finally, we'll give David the almost last word uh, right before we say goodbye. All these participants you see are people who have wondered about really big things that weren't necessarily okay to ask in other faith spaces. Part of what holds us together here is that we get to ask we get to wonder openly and honestly about what has bothered us along the way. And with that, I think the first question comes from Jonathan Benedetti. All right. 
So I think this is a potentially controversial thing that we're talking about this evening. So why don't we start off with a softball, like a simple question, just, just serve it up to you. Who is God and what is God like? <laughs> okay, okay. Because it's, it's pretty foundational for any of the things that we're going to really dive into is really looking at who, who God is or who we believe that God is because there's a lot of pictures of God out there, some of them kind and loving and just, some of them vindictive and retributive and violent. So how would you answer that? Well, when I was, uh, I, didn't, I did not grow up um, in the church. I, I grew up outside of the church. I had friends that invited me. I grew up in uh, Irving, Texas. And um, so uh, I kind of just soaked up what was in the environment. Maybe nobody actually said these words to me, but I got the idea that, that God was sort of this angry person who was upset with humanity uh, for reasons I couldn't really understand, having to do with people doing something bad in a garden a long time ago. <laughs> but anyway, for that, for, for, the, for that reason, we were all these sinners, and we were down here, and he was way holy, and he was up there, and he, dis and he had his heaven, and he had his hell, and he was deciding who he was going to put in his, in his heaven and who he was going to put into hell. And that's just who I thought that that being was. And there was a time when I thought I cannot understand or relate to that being as a God that I want to worship. Later on in life, um, I began to read authors like C.S. Lewis, uh, eventually uh, authors like George MacDonald, other Christians mm -hmm. who had a far more loving vision of God who was like a perfect parent who was near to us and who wanted us to understand just how much we were loved and accepted. And it took Jesus to come into the world to show that once I read the Gospels for myself, and I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I read some of the passages in Paul's writings about the extravagant love of God, I began to realize that maybe God, that it was possible to be a Christian and to believe in a God of perfect love, of perfect light, and who there is no darkness at all, who had conceived this whole creation all, and all of us from the very beginning as something that would go on a a long, raucous journey, including the crucifixion of Christ, but also his resurrection in sort of the middle of it, but then it would ultimately resolve in a, in a biblical passage in 1 Corinthians with God being all in all and everything being reconciled and that I could trust and believe in that and that that was a permissible way to be Christian. And that was um, a revolutionary kind of moment for me. And then in ministry over the years, I have helped people to understand that that is a way that is permissible for them to view God within the Christian tradition. And that's what my book is about. And that's what I do now is to try to make people aware that, that the possibilities for how we understand God within the Christian tradition may be much wider and broader than people may know. <laughs> beautifully put. And that's not even his full question. That's just who God is, right? You have more. <laughs> okay. You have more? 
Yeah, well, I mean, how does that, how would you say that that, um, your understanding of God, that liberating picture of God that you received um, and began to see, how did that impact the rest of your theology and the rest of the way that, just the way that you looked at the world, the way that you looked at faith, um, perhaps also the way that you looked at the end of all things and whatever comes after the end of all things? um, Mm -hmm. Well, as difference did it make? Well, in, in a way, it didn't make that much difference, and in a way, it made a lot of difference. In a way, it didn't make very, that much difference because as a minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, my job is to introduce people to the journey of faith that begins when we commit ourselves to discipleship, to becoming disciples of Jesus, to following his way, and into receiving the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven and beginning to live that eternal kind of life right now. And so I had always said that in Christ following him, we begin to experience the eternal life of God right now. And if we decide we don't want to do that, then we begin walking a path of destruction in this life and in whatever comes beyond this life. And I had always thought that, that God was full of grace and mercy and that he would save everybody who was savable. And I, I thought well, there might be some people that just embrace evil to such a great extent that maybe there's nothing that God could do with them. But through years and years of ministry and reflection and thinking and being challenged by members of my own congregation to think through things, I began to see that, that finally the way to hold my vision of God together the best was just to go ahead and affirm that there is nothing that can finally defeat the love and the grace and the mercy of God for each and every one of his beloved and dear children. And I will say that when I made that step and I began to see and to believe in my heart that every person is my eternal brother and sister with whom I am destined to be fully reconciled in eternity, the world came alive to me in a beautiful in very intense kind of way that I had not experienced before. Wow. I want you to repeat one really important thing. Nothing can ultimately defeat. That's how it started. Yeah. What were the rest of those words in that sentence? Well, I just began to believe that nothing can ultimately defeat the love and the grace and the mercy of God for each and every individual dear child that God has. And I believe that that is every single one of us. And when, when I finally reached that point, I just had a sense of, I try to tell, but like, if you've ever had the feeling of everything just kind of clicking together inside mm-hmm. and just feeling sure. like this, this pulls everything together, this makes everything make sense. I never, it just made everything pop, I guess, for me spiritually in a new way. <laughs> and, you know, that was seven or eight years ago. And I still get chill bumps every time I think about it. It's, it has, in a way, kind of supercharged my, my spirituality. Um, That's beautiful. I'm, I'm more excited about being a Christian and talking about spiritual things than I've ever been, you know, before. As a minister for many years. Good stuff. Okay, but yeah. before you get too far ahead of us on that track, I think question number two is kind of some pushback against this idea. Okay. Um, Jennifer, is, I think you're, you're up next. 
Okay. Um, well, when I think about the, the scripture, and particularly the Gospels, mm-hmm. um, there's some references there that I know I've struggled with. I'm sure other people have struggled with uh, in terms of our concept of maybe what hell is. And so when I think about like Luke 16 and the story mm-hmm. of the rich man and Lazarus and how he's um, in agony yeah. and the rich man is in agony in the fire, um, or I think about Matthew 25 and mm-hmm. uh, where we talk, where we see uh, Jesus talking about separating the sheep from the goats. And then at the end there, there's a, a reference to eternal punishment. Um, at yeah. least that's the way it seems to be translated uh, in some of the translations that I've read. So with all of those and then just to general references about uh, Gehenna throughout you know, then the New Testament, kind of all of these things, I think, at least at some point in my upbringing were um, supposed to be these ideas of what hell was. So what, I mean, really in the scripture and in, in your understanding, where do you, I mean, how do you see what Jesus is really saying about hell? You, you, uh, you said a very important word, and that word is translation. And I think what we have to realize is that we are, when we're reading the Bible in English, we're reading something that uh, has a long history of translation going in Western Christianity, going from the original Greek language, then through Latin, mm-hmm. then into Old English, now into Modern English. And that whole history then, I think we really need to take these things into account. What I can say in brief is, that when you look at the, the, for the rich man and Lazarus, um, it, up until uh, 2011, I think, the readers of the NIV would have read that the rich man was in hell. But then after 2011, the NIV changed the translation to say that the rich man was in Hades. That's what's in the original text. That's a bit of a difference, right? Hell, Hades. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a lot less hell in modern translations of the Bible because using the word hell as a simple translation for Hades or Gehenna uh, can turn out to be misleading because these terms have different connotations and, and ideas. What I can say in brief is, is that I still have a robust idea that sin leads to destruction. And so Gehenna, Hades, the lake of fire, uh, God being a consuming fire. Jesus talks about um, the wicked being thrown in a blazing furnace, which causes weeping and gnashing of teeth. Also mm-hmm. talks about being thrown in outer darkness, which causes weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you think about it, you can see that there's, there's kind of analogy going on here. If you actually threw somebody in literal fire, there would not be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There would be screaming and yelling and then silence. And putting somebody in the dark doesn't automatically make them start weeping and gnashing their teeth. There's, there's some idea of, of exclusion or judgment or, or coming, having to come to terms with something that's very unpleasant and very difficult as part of the healing process. So there are there are many of these judgment passages, but it's curious. I, I will sometimes, um, I'll be talking with people and I'll say, say, you know, my favorite Bible verse is Lamentations 3, <laughs> 
31 to 33. And they'll say, well, what's that one? And I'll, and, and I'll talk about it. You know, it's in the Old Testament, and it's after the... Uh, let me, I'll just read it for you. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. They think that Lamentations is probably written by the prophet Jeremiah. But it reads like this. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Now, most people that I've talked to have never heard that verse in the Bible. And the reason that they've never heard that verse in the Bible is it doesn't go with the theologies that they've been taught. Mm. And so and, what, and lamentations. <laughs> yeah, lamentations. We didn't go looking in lamentations for something that positive. Right. And what happens <laughs> is you find out that the Jewish people, in the depth of their lamentations, realize that as far down as we are, they had this realization that no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Wow. We think of that as the Old Testament. Jesus thought of it as his Bible. Uh-huh. And he would have known these words. And if, if you look at Jesus' judgment language, there's one point where he's talking about Gehenna and the danger of Gehenna. But then he says it's, it's like if you, were, uh, if you were being taken to court, uh, try, to, try to make amends before, before you get there because you may be thrown into prison and then you mm-hmm. will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So even Jesus, when he's using Gehenna references and trying to show the danger of, of holding on to unreconciling behavior that could put you into Gehenna, even in that context, it seems like that there is some absolute end that can come to it. So what I've wanted to do is take as seriously as I can the judgment language of the scriptures in their original languages and in their original context, but then also be able to say that I think that there's a message of grace and inclusion and healing um, that the Lord is. And, and so I'm standing on this Bible verse, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Mm-hmm. I just believe that to be true. I believe the Bible to be true when it says that. It corresponds with a lot of other things that, that I find in the Bible as well. So you're right. These are great questions that you're asking. And I go through a lot of that in my book and my podcast and things. Um, but I still think there can be reconcil- reconciliation and restoration on the other side of even very severe judgment. I love the certainty with which you speak when you say, I believe the Bible to be true. I, I love it. I um, aim for that. I don't always get there because certainty doesn't come to all of us in the same way. Our next area of question is, is just generally about being not sure, which is something I think really afflicts the most thoughtful people among us because we really want to think it through, take our Bibles seriously, and sometimes it's a lot to process. So with that, Ingrid, I'm going to um, invite you in. Thank you. Ever since I was a teenager, I have revolted against the traditional Christian faith And I have always questioned uh, the existence of God, the power of God. I have uh, questioned all the issues about heaven and hell ever since I was an early teenager. I can say that I have questioned every parable that Jesus Christ has ever told. I have questioned every miracle he has allegedly performed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until the last few years, I could probably claim that I would be a great poster child for anti-church. 
Um, I have refused most of my adult life to believe in something that I was taught just because I was taught it. I've refused to believe in something that I've heard just because it was preached from the pulpit or read from the Bible. I have uh, refused to, to accept a statement that someone would make if they would say that it was true because it was inerrant from God himself. Um, this doubt that I've had all of my adult life has led me to be ridiculed and chastised. But at the same time, I think my doubt has um, enveloped me with a lot of searching. Um, I've done a lot of reading. I've spent a lot of time with other people who have questioned. And so I think my doubt slowly over the years has led me to believe that there is possibly a God who loves me. And um, I feel that FCC in particular has enabled me on my quest, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, my deepest longing in my heart is to, to know with certainty, or maybe even a little certainty would be all right, <laughs> um, the deepest longing in my heart is to know that I believe in a God who is present and who loves me because of my own personal experience mm -hmm. and not from what I've been taught or told. I have been focusing for years on staying centered and quieting my soul and staying in the present moment because I, I believe through that process I can be more easily connected with the Spirit of God. And I think slowly over time through that process, I am coming to believe that God does love me and love the world um, and uh, maybe answers prayers in ways that I've never really expected before. Mm -hmm. Life, we all know, is filled with ups and downs and good and bad and joyful times and horrible times. And I think in the middle, in the midst of all of that, I have had some experiences where I am seeing differently and hearing things differently, but it happens very sporadically. So most of the time I feel like God is hard to, to be in touch with. So my question to you, David, is, what is it that I have to specifically believe or exactly believe in your opinion in order to claim that I'm a Christian? And why in your experience it, is it so hard to be in touch and keep in touch with a loving power when they claim that he will never leave us or forsake us? You know, well, even, even the people who have been, I think sort of famously, you know, Mother Teresa, it talks about yeah. feeling a sense of God's absence a lot and that part of the faith journey, even for people in the Bible, <laughs> is feeling the absence of God and wondering about things, you know. Jesus, why have you forsaken me? You know, even he, you know, gives that, that cry. Uh, so I think that what, what I have thought is that there's a, passage where Paul in the 17th chapter of Acts says that God, he's talking to a group of pagans, and he says, 
that God is near to each one of us, that we might reach out and discover him, not far away from him, and that we are all God's children. So somehow I've come to believe that this journey that we are on in life is this process of, of discovery. Some of us seem to fall more easily into faith. Others of us seem to struggle. I was one who struggled. Um, I finally sort of came to believe that with the help of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ when I found it as a young, as a, as a, in, in my 20s, that finally my spiritual growth and experience was something that I had to take responsibility for. It was not the minister's journey, wasn't anybody else's journey. This was going to have to be my journey, that the role of the church was not to tell me exactly what that was going to be, but to provide me an experience where I could go on that journey over the course of a lifetime. And I can tell you that that even happens when you go to seminary, you go into ministry, you're still, we're all on the journey, on this journey together. What, what I have, what has been so profound to me about the Christian Church Disciples of Christ was all these other churches that I went to when I was searching, they all had sort of a list of things that I had to believe. And what they, right. what they said basically is, we are here, we believe in God, and we want to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to the best of our understanding. We don't all see it and understand it the same way. It's a journey for all of us, and we're in conversation about it. And what they did is they extended this invitation to me, come, go on the journey, have communion, agree, disagree, be inspired, be angry, whatever. We're just all going to go on this journey together. And when there are times that your faith is struggling, we will hold you up. And if there are times that our faith is struggling, we hope that you will hold us up. And uh, I also like to say that the Christian church was unique, that it never asked me to put any limit on how, God, how good I could believe God to be. And so I came to believe that God is supremely good. And I think that we are already included in God's love and grace. We are already included in Christ. You don't have to believe that in order to already be included in it. Uh, so I think that what happens, that grace, there just comes a point of awakening. And it just happens. It's a gift. It's not really something we can force, but it is something that we can be open to. And in my experience, it sneaks up on me in the strangest of moments. And so really, it's just about being on the journey together and coming to the table and not going it alone. Not going it alone was a big thing. Being in community and just just keeping going. And I, it, it came. What <laughs> I discovered was that it came. Maybe not when I expected it or wanted it, but it, it came nonetheless. I like the fact that you keep, I keep hearing you say, I've come to believe, or I began to believe, or as if it is a journey. Because yes. I think when I was growing up, I heard and was taught that this is the way it is, and your belief is supposed to be automatic. And um, that is not my experience. Right. It was sort of the Happy Meal package, right? You're just going to get whatever number three on the menu is. You've got to get everything in the bag. 
And that's what faith is, right? That's what was given to us as kids. Um, I love your poetic non-list answer to Ingrid's question. What is the minimum, Ingrid says? And David says, words, words, beautiful words, words, words. There was not a list in any of that. There was not like a... <laughs> there, was, there was an answer. You don't there, have to believe to be included. You oh, do have to believe nice. to experience. That, you should say that again. Yes, please say that again. Okay. Yeah. Okay, belief is not what includes us in God's love or makes us God's child. But until I believe that I am loved, until I believe that I am secure in God's love, until I believe those things, I cannot live and act out of that security. So faith, okay. to me, is very, very close to the word trust, that until I, faith for me is trusting that the love of God is real, that Jesus is for me. Jesus is with me. He is with everyone. And just coming to believe that and to coming to have trust, trust in that, my, my believing it doesn't make it to be true, but it does make it to be true for me to be able to experience. Sometimes I say, if, if I told you that um, I'd put a bunch of money in the bank for you, and you said, no, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. And you said, no, you didn't. I said, well, okay. That doesn't change the fact that it's still there. But if I said it and you were able to believe me and then gain access to it mm. and use it to do a bunch of things, you know. It so you're saying, you're telling yeah. me that belief and trust comes before the experience rather or, than the fact that I'm looking for the experience before I believe and trust. I think inclusion we are included by grace, is what I would say. We are included by no effort or action on our part, but waking up to that inclusion and that grace and mercy. I think sometimes before we can wake up to it, we have to go through a period where we think we earned it or where we Ooh. thought we deserved it. And then sometimes what happens, and it takes a while for that to break down and fall apart. And then we begin to get to the point, and this was kind of my journey where I began to realize this was never anything that I earned. This was never anything that I merited. This was never anything that I made happen. This was all 100% by grace from beginning to end. But it took me a long time to get to that, to get to that understanding, I would say. This is the Thank deep you. question. Deep, yeah, good, good question. Thank questions. You. Thank you. I think one layer of confusion that sort of rests over us all is, is that church as we know it, we, our context is East Texas, um, <laughs> modern times, uh, Northeast Texas. There's kind of one predominant way, right? And there aren't that many other acceptable ways to do it. And the way, there used to be so many more choices of, not, not choices of what to believe, but ways to touch and experience God. Um, that is something Dave Malin can talk a lot about. I know, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your question a little, but I know that you had in mind a little bit about church history, where we came from, and ha how we have sort of narrowed to a different place. Because, you know, in the early days of Christianity, Ingrid might not have had the same struggle because no one would have told her, it has to look this way, and here's the list, and you gotta believe the list and check all the boxes. Faith was a different thing originally. Um, I'm thinking of the mystics. I'm thinking of just other ways of being that were valued. Mystery was m more accepted, you know, in the early days. So if, if you can jump from there, I will well, give you the, the mic. 
you know, mysticism, Ingrid and I are involved in centering prayer. It's a silent form of prayer led by a uh, counselor from Mosaic, a local counseling center, Lance Bolay, who's uh, Church of Christ uh, raised, and, uh -huh. and he's a terrific guy. Uh, but I think we've, you know, that was never a, a, any kind of activity that was offered or thought mm -hmm. of by uh, Christians, and, and yet I think to have that experience has been fraught with meaning, and I know you would agree. Yes, I do. Um, but, you know, I've been in my life uh, a, a, a seeker, a searcher, on a quest. I, I have, like all of us here, had doubts. And, uh, and this was comforted along the way. I, I appreciate your comment about, you know, having something experiential some encounter with the divine. <laughs> and I had several. Uh, once, uh, I was about 12 years old, I was going to Boy Scout camp six miles away from my house, and I started freaking out. I was just a, you know, a young teenager. And I got so, I wanted to go home to mom and dad. <laughs> and uh, I felt so alone. I went out in the woods and was kind of emotionally wrought. And I started saying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. And all of a sudden, this peace came over me that just, and almost a voice that said, it's going to be all right. And it was. I had a great experience that week. But it was, it was beyond me. It was, you know, left to my own devices, I would have continued to go into a puddle. Uh, there was another time when uh, my boss uh, at the federal court asked me to fire somebody that I didn't think merited firing. You know, he was in conflict with a, uh, a young woman on our staff, and I said, no, I, I can't do that. I, I can make critique, but I'm, I'm not going to fire her. Well, lo and behold, duh. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, who gets their pink slip but me? <laughs> <laughs> I should have figured that out. But, you know, losing, I'd never lost a job. I, I was given a couple of months grace period to find another one. And the, uh, the reality was that there was one night where I felt like there were demons. I, I mean, this is really weird, but... But not in the first but century not, or the second century. It's very experiential. The <laughs> yeah. This buzzing, this evil presence was buzzing around my head. I, I was uh, two young children, family, uh, what do I do? You know, I was just out of my mind. And all of a sudden, again, God intervenes. Uh, it was like he rebuked this anxiety, evil presence, whatever you want to call it, craziness. Um, and I, I, I felt at peace. Now, those are a couple of experiences along the way that, that convinced me. There was another time as a young adult. So wait, can I ask? I'm sorry. I don't, yeah. I don't want to stop your story. I just want to yeah. uh, bring this back to where we started. Yeah. Those things, I think what I heard you say last night when we've talked before, those things are really valid, religious, holy moments and experiences. Yeah. What happened to those kinds of experiences being common in church in the modern days? Is that kind of like what, 
one thing we were discussing is what happened to the church that we closed off some of these experiences yeah. and began to be a system of proper belief kind of instead of and, yes doctrine yeah. Yeah. yes thank you for thinking of that yeah. word yeah well i think for um, you know the church uh, there was a, a gap between the time that jesus lived and walked on this earth and and then there were people who knew him first-hand experienced people like matthew and john you know people that wrote the gospels that um conveyed kind of a contemporaneous knowledge of of the love and compassion and uh, empathy that he represented and i think for after these kind of experiences and there were more of them in my life but i, I felt like god had reached out to me that it was more than just happenstance he was looking after hmm. little old me wow so what what happened there you know as time went along rome goes from being a, a, a an oppressor to being with constantine all of a sudden we're <laughs> in the power elite and then the catholic church is the only church in in town and then we've got the reformation and the inventing of the printing press and then uh you know everything was in latin back in the old days well now it's readily discussed and available but what have have we lost something along the way i'm thinking about i'm looking at jonathan shirt and dietrich bonhoeffer uh who railed against cheap grace and he was brave enough to <laughs> i don't know he felt like hitler needed to be stopped and he participated in a an effort to do away with hitler and it didn't work and he was executed days before the end of the world war and 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 terrific person but yeah. that i still have problems with you know isn't that pretty pretty noble and yet by the same token i'd like to hear your comments on on that and just you know orthodox christianity isn't monolithic but by the same token uh i i think we've to some degree at the present time devolved into an adversarial uh, uh, culture to, to some degree. And, and we, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're casting aspersions towards the group that's perceived to be on the other side of things. Well, I think, I think one of the, yeah. well, I, th I think just one of the things that has been most healing for me, one was spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. I had the opportunity to preach through the Sermon on the Mount for about a year and a half and just sort of immersing myself in the Sermon on the Mount and the original vision that Jesus had, his proclamation of the good news of the now present kingdom and the ways that people could experience that and live in it and sort of what his original charge to those disciples were and what they were to teach and how they were to go out and to live and embody at this kingdom. And then to pay particular attention to the first few centuries of the church, where the church was a persecuted minority, mm -hmm. uh, but also where things were not really rigid, rigidly set, and to look and to see some of those early church fathers and the conversations and the things that they were, that they were thinking about. And then in the light of that, 
to take stock of what it mean what it means to be a part of the Western Christian tradition, which went through an imperial, uh, you know, the imperial Church of Rome, mm-hmm. and then now that then the Reformation happened, and then you know now the printing press, and now and now the internet. Mm-hmm. So to me, it, it seems that we're at a point of a, a time of great reflection. I would say spirituality is more democratized than it has ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to do a podcast? You can do a podcast. <laughs> you want to write a book? You can. You can write Just a book. For instance. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so you know you, you introduced me as an expert. I'm somebody who studied something who and who wants to be a part of the conversation, and so I think that we're in a time that's every bit as 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 fraught with possibilities and conflict mm. as the Protestant Reformation, and wow. whatever the printing press was. Yeah. The internet is that on steroids, mm-hmm. and so it's, this is just a time when basically everything is being thrown up, reconsidered, reconfigured, uh, and talked about for churches that are very that that have spent a lot of time getting every, all their doctrines all organized and everything. It's a very <laughs> difficult time. Uh, I think this may be the moment. For the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, oh, we yeah. are uniquely positioned mm-hmm. to be able to be comfortable in this moment where we can have this discussion because that's what this church is about. Open tables, discussions. You said I'm an expert. Well, maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. You can agree with me. You can disagree with me. Uh, I am not in any position to dictate any of this thing, any of these things. But there's something that happens when you open up the conversation and you say, we can all talk about this. There's no amount of information that is off the table, and we can have a full and open, honest conversation with this. And the, the job of the minister is not to shut that down, but to make sure that it continues oh, like that. to continues to happen. Um, and in the midst of all of that, people do. When you give them, when you empower people to go on their own spiritual journey and you tell them to pay attention to what's happening inside of them and to really be intentional about all of that, then people do have their own spiritual journeys, not something that's pumped into them by somebody else. And that that that, that can actually happen in community is a very exciting, exciting thing. I like that very much. So we're in a moment. I heard that. And I saw that we all got a little excited when you said, you know, this might be the moment, the, the um, printing press on steroids. We might be at another moment, the, like, um, is it Phyllis Tickles, the fi- a garage sale every 500 years yeah. is what the church undergoes. So maybe some of these really ancient ideas that Dave dug into and found were good and valuable, maybe it's ripe for those things to, you know, come back around, right? Centering prayer is one of those things. It's a very old idea, not a new modern idea, right? I think I'm surprised at how much, um, how much I just took for granted as the way it's always been was actually a very modern creation, like maybe from the 1980s on. And since I just showed up like at the very, you know, yeah. just after that, um, I just thought, well, that's it. This is how the church has always thought and been, but so not true. You, I mean, well, Thomas yeah. Keating, uh, you know, a, a, a yeah. mis- mystic, uh, he, he's often credited with reviving the ancient tradition in Christianity of contemplation and uh-huh. uh, monastic thought and, and uh, the value of silence. 
and, and, and letting God come back into your life. Uh, you know, that's been terrific. Thomas Merton, uh, Richard yeah. Rohr's big hero, along with yeah. Francis of Assisi. We are terrific. And you just dropped Richard Rohr's name. I think that's like five, if I'm counting. Like, oh, we, we've completely right. nerded out. Everyone's very well, happy with it. I'm, I'm, um, but <laughs> that kind of gets me to where your area of question is. We can keep going for a really long time and talk about yes, a lot of could. things. Yeah. And, and also, what does it matter? <laughs> so, so that, yeah, no, and, and this is my question, right? Um, because as we talk about the ancient church, and as I've listened to um, a few of your podcasts, one particularly comes to mind where you discussed that the, the ancient church, the idea of what we would now call universalism, could have been the orthodox view. Uh. And I struggle with that as an annihilationalist. <laughs> <laughs> to tip your because, hand. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, you know. But I, uh. I struggle with that because in, in my mind, what, why does it matter then how we think about heaven and hell and who gets in? And why does it matter or what matters, like what we do in the here and now, if there is no annihilation of the soul. <laughs> if there is no hell, then yeah. it seems to me there are no, there's no consequences for then how you act and behave in the here and now. It's a good question, right? Uh, <laughs> no, what does it matter? If, let me just talk about, uh, it, the title of my book is Grace Saves All. The subtitle is The Necessity of Christian Universalism. And I came to a surprising conclusion in the writing of the book. And that was that if, if I took God to be all good, all knowing, and all powerful, that the only ultimate resolution of that could be the consummation of creation in which all of God's children are finally reconcil reconciled well and healed and home. And that if one of those children had become annihilated or irretrievably lost in some way, that that wasn't something that happened at the end. That was something that happened at the beginning. In the, in the foreknowledge and the planning of God, God looked ahead, said, I'm going to make a creation, but these people aren't going to be involved in the final consummation of it. They are going to be forever excluded by being annihilated or eternally tormented. And God looked at that and then incorporated hopelessness into the very creation. Because if that was what's going to happen to those people at the end, it was also going to happen from the beginning. And a God who is good cannot enfold any amount of hopelessness in the creation. So if God is to be a being in whom there is light and no darkness at all, then there can't be any darkness at the beginning, and there can't be any darkness at the end. Now, I am not the first person to have thought through this. The early church, uh, brilliant theologian and scholar, Origen of Alexandria, had the same concern in his day. People were attacking the goodness of God, and that was one of his primary mm -hmm. reasons for affirming a final, ultimate reconciliation of all things. So, uh, I think annihilationism is much better than eternal torment. Much better. 
Thank you. And, and I could be wrong about that. I, I, have to, I have to, you know, admit that. I think that the coming debate is going to be between annihilationism and universalism. Okay. I think that eternal torment, although it seems really strong, is finally so indefensible on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting to me that eternal torment, that the, a lot of the people who are most vigorously attacking the doctrine of eternal torment are evangelicals huh. who are either embracing annihilationism mm -hmm. or uh, universal restoration. I, I think that's, the, that's the, the, the debate that we're going to continue uh, to continue to have. Mm. But that, and it just, to me, it, it's all, to me, it's all about the goodness of God. And for me, the goodness of God is directly related to my ability to worship God. And when I got to the point where I believe that God was light in whom there is no darkness at all, absolute goodness, purity, and undefeating love that cannot be uh, defeated, man, it is not, it was not hard at all for me to get excited about worshiping that being and believing and, and being able to just feel and connect with that experience and all the kind of intuitive kinds of ways that you can't really communicate to another person. So it, it meant a lot for me in my worship life, just holding my, the goodness of God together. And then I could see it affecting and changing the lives of other people that were in my church community and that I was experiencing online and talking with that were all having this sort of spiritual renewal and revival that was coming out of this. So, so there's a good part, little piece of your answer. You went a lot of places in that response, but I liked, um, cause it, cause it made it, I'm way paraphrasing because it made it more fun because it was suddenly easy to worship because you saw people's lives changed. It, it was, it was fun to be alive. That's what mattered, right? It, it brought some, it brought a thing mm. to life. It brought, it brought, it brought even more life to life. Yeah. yeah. That's yes. I do like that. And I see people moving from, you know, moving from the doctrine of eternal torment to annihilationism. Just that step brings new life. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm out of that. And um, I think that just as we continue to move to a, a, a vision of God, at least to ourselves, that, appear, that appears to ourselves to be supremely good, that something wonderful, something wonderful happens. Outside, external to us even, out mm -hmm. in the world, not just on the inside, right? Do we think, like, I think that. Yeah. Um, okay, so, but while we're doing big picture things, while we're moving, um, I'm going to go to Galen, who's willing to envision really big pictures, who's willing to move his mind, um, and I think you have a good thing to ask. You know, you David, I've had the opportunity to read your book, Grace Saves All, and listen to many of your podcasts, and uh, it, it's just been such an inspiration to me to read the book and also uh, listen to the podcast and the uh visitors and the and the guests you have on there but it, we don't have to go very far on social media or print media or anywhere mm -hmm. to find out that there are there is a large faction of the church kind of carrying on from the previous question that they feel feel like it's their place in this world to protect heaven or protect huh. be the gatekeeper huh. more or less and um Anytime you bring up a, a, a conversation about ultimate redemption or, heaven forbid, Christian universalism, 
I mean, those are, uh, those are lightning points. And Them's it, fighting's words. It, yeah, those are fighting words. And, and bringing those up in a conversation in the lunchroom at your work or, or sometimes even with friends or family, you, you find yourself almost under attack. And so as, as I, I, I think in, in your book, biblically and as well as historically, you tie scripture to, to your support of, of both of those concepts. And, and so what, what I want to know is, as we think of as God's reconciliation of his creation, what's the big problem with everybody <laughs> getting into heaven that's what i want to know why why do so many people feel like i don't want sally going or or jim going but but just what's the worst that can happen yeah what's the worst thing that can happen if everybody gets into heaven well that's um it it, hell okay well first of all that you know when i started thinking about how wonderful it would be that all would be reconciled back to god and that we would all be healed and well, I begin to realize that for people who especially have been terribly wounded and violated, that for them, hell, we've all heard, is too good for the person that did that to me. And so, in a way, hell, for some people, is kind of a stand-in for God's ultimate justice and so I don't have to. I don't have to do bad things. I don't have to punish them because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and He will punish. And He will punish them. And there's a certain idea of I don't ever, ever want to see their face again. And if I do see their face again, it'll be ruined. And I can't be happy in heaven if that. Oh yeah. Is there? And um, and also I think that uh, over time as the, the doctrines of the church developed, the doctrine of eternal torment or the doctrine of hell or the final separation of some being lost became so entrenched into uh, Christian doctrine that to, to doubt that seemed like you were doubting maybe the Christian faith itself. And so I think uh, in studying the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, you know, it teaches love your enemies, do good to those who, quote, persecute you, you know, Jesus prayed for the people who were crucifying him. Well, if he can do that, I think I can have room in my heart to have good thoughts for somebody who may say something not nice to me because I'm a Christian universalist. Like, you know, wouldn't it be ironic for me as a Christian universalist to get mad at somebody because I'm a Christian? (laughs) The whole idea is that what I'm believing is that the love of God reigns supreme and that God's mercy and grace will finally bring us all together. And so I certainly can love people who might have a different uh, opinion. Also, I have found out in some of the interviews that I've done with people, it's sometimes the people that are railing the hardest against it that end up embracing it later, <laughs> later on. So you never, you, just, you never can tell where a person is in their spiritual journey, what's motivating them to say that certain thing. And if you learn one thing in ministry, just don't take it too seriously, the things that people say to you. It's, it's motivated by all kinds of things. You may just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just let it slide <laughs> off of you and just love them. And, you know, and just don't... I just have gotten to the point where I just don't worry about that. I just want to stay positive 
and focused. Yeah. And no, there is grace is no less grace if it saves every last one of us. That takes I, a, it takes a yeah. while to get to that, but Kyle's going to interject. Can, he's got a burning thing. I, I do. I have a, I have a, a thought or, or a question yeah. that I want to hear hear you on, because what I'm hearing in that answer is that the the person who needs hell as a place of ultimate justice, that need gets reconciled in the end, just as the person who did the evil gets reconciled at the end. Which is not get away with. No. Reconciliation is not the same as... Correct. Yeah. And so... So in my mind, as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking strictly in terms of my individual reconciliation with God. But in that, I hear you saying there is a reconciliation not only with God, but also with each other. And that is the part yeah. that, that misses, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, you know, disturbingly clear that we are forgiven to the extent that we forgive others. So that, you know, <laughs> seeking, to, seeking to receive for yourself something that you are not willing to extend to others, I think is something God might want to point out. A little bit? <laughs> yeah. It seems like you're wanting something yeah. for some... It's like yeah. you, you want to hold this over their head forever, but you don't want me to hold this about you over your head forever. Like, what's wrong with this right. picture? Mm. To, to be fair, that's what a lot of people don't like about church, right? That's a, that's a big reason why a lot of folks aren't in churches today, because they think church is that person on an institutional scale. So I think the idea that, that, that we finally... That reconciliation... If we can trust that nobody really, quote, gets away with anything. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus said that we will all be salted with fire. He also said fire is good, <laughs> which doesn't feel good at the time. <laughs> but I think we've all had those experiences that are difficult, yeah. gut-wrenching experiences in which we realize I was wrong. I hurt that person. I need to seek reconciliation with them. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the fiery furnace. That's the outer darkness. That's the weeping and gnashing of teeth Mm. that God brings all of God's children to because what do parents do who love their children? They discipline and they correct them, not to destroy them, I would argue, uh, not 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 to torment them forever, but to ultimately bring about their restoration and their healing. Thank you, David, for taking seriously what we um, started out playing off as a lighthearted question. It was always more than lighthearted. I kind of liked it on both levels. I, you know, <laughs> I like asking, and I, and I like digging in and, and really talking. Um, I, I think I just want to take uh, a second to say um, we didn't fully address that, that really important, significant case scenario when there are people who have reasons um, to, to need to need hell to be the place where their abusers are. Um, I, I do think that's a, that's a legitimate way of thinking and being in the world. Mm. Um, and and I, think, I think Christ works on that. Um, the Holy Spirit works on that. We don't negate that as real. We haven't, we, and we kind of don't have time to really dig into there. Um, I just want to say, yep, that's a legitimate read. I understand that much. Um, so now we're kind of wrapping, we're moving into a wrapping up phase. We're moving towards the end of our time together. So we get to sort of say if there was anything um, 
we heard that we've wondered about also, never quite thought about the same way, anything that really resonated, I'm going to ask our um, special AV team, our top-notch AV team, to turn all of the microphones on at once so that anyone of us um, in the panel can talk to anyone else and address what you heard. Anything spark your theological imagination tonight? Well, David, here's one that's bothered me for some time. You know, the statement that apparently attributed to Christ that no one will get into the kingdom but through me, which implies that you have to be a Christian to, to get into <laughs> heaven. What about our Muslim friends? You know, I, I, uh, what about our Jewish friends? Are, are they excluded? What about Gandhi? What about, uh, but even the, the poor person in the third See. world who's a good person, or even if they're not. Um, do you have any thoughts about You're just, that? Hang just, on, we might want to hold that because I, I just want to check. Um, that might be something that our commenters online want us to ask about later. Um, I okay. just want to make sure that that's not a question that's already coming to David at the end. Um, I do completely think we should address it. I think first, if there's anything that you heard your fellow panelists mm. say that you especially loved or made you think, um, we just want to hear it. I, you know, one thing that, that we talked about that Ingrid brought up was this idea of, of belief begets experience. Um, but then the interesting thing, what I heard was that, yes, that is true. But then the flip side is also true, right? The, the experience begets the belief yeah, as well. And, and it, it made me think of... Um, of a thought that I had quite a while ago that I still wrestle with that in, in the beginning, God breathes life into Adam's nostrils and, um, and then he breathes life into each and every one of us. And I wonder if that word of, of breath there being similar to the word for spirit can also have some kind of dual meaning of when we are brought to life, there is some level of indwelling of the Spirit that then awakens later on in the Christian life. And it's this kind of, this both and kind of thing. And I just, what, what I, what Ingrid, what your question and, and the thoughts that you exchanged kind of brought up in me was how much of this life and this striving is a both and situation. How much of it, the, the answer is, is it this or this? And the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, I just, it, yeah. it, it mesmerizes me all the time how that happens. Um, how I that happens with God. I think a lot of us have probably yeah. experienced that. And that's probably what's made it hard sometimes because mm. we recognize the and that connects mm. all things. Yeah. I also loved Ingrid's um, whole line of questioning. I just appreciate, I appreciate you. So that, see, that's two of us who yeah. are like, yeah, I want to talk about that. That was really great. Well, one thing, Kyle, that this sticks in memory, I became a big fan of Stephen Covey after my wrestling with demons after getting fired. Yeah. And I started reading his Seven Habits book, and he's a Mormon, you know, which is kind of, for many of us, kind of a oh, I don't know, kind of an oddity, and yet the thoughts in that book were so Christian, so helpful. 
uh, on, on just getting on the right pathway. Uh, right. Things like begin with the end in mind. You know, how, it, <laughs> how do you want your life to end up? Um, first things first, putting the, the most important things on your daily schedule first. Uh, and, and you know, a, a huge one is the listening one. Mm -hmm. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. What, wouldn't that help us if we did that more with uh, potential uh, philosophical adversaries? Right. You know, it, uh -huh. it, there's a temptation to jump right into the fray. And then another one of my big favorites is synchronize, you know, work together. Have we lost that? But it, it's such a, a, an urging that came directly from Christ. And, and to me, those are helpful things that we can use in, in just kind of easing into the less egotistical second half of life, at least from some of us. We're, we're old enough to qualify for that. Yeah. Second you know. half of life. Yeah. The new container, right, new to container. throw in a Richard Rohr reference, right? right? Um, yeah, Jennifer. Um, I was just thinking about something that you said a little while ago about uh, reconciliation. And um, growing up, I, I attend a... Uh, a retreat every summer where mm -hmm. uh, I have been just blessed to be able to sit and listen to some of the best Bible teachers and evangelists mm -hmm. and people that I've you know come across in my life and there was one particular man who um, told a story um, and in the end point because that would take too long to tell the whole <laughs> story but uh, the end point was it was more important to be reconciled than to be right. And it stuck yeah. with me all of my life since I heard that. And so, um, and I would look at like my dad and I realized this was something that my father, my semi-professed atheist father <laughs> would, set, would do. He did this. You know, you could have an argument with dad and it didn't matter if he was right or I was right. He was the first person to come and to move to reconciliation every time in the relationship. Mm. And it was such a valuable thing that I learned from him. And then to watch his journey of transformation in faith, realizing like we're talking about here, that it doesn't have to fit in a certain box and that it can look different. You know, um, before my father died, he cried at every hymn sung in the <laughs> church. He was the most emotional person. But, and it was just such a blessing to see um, the growth in all of that. But, but that being more important to be reconciled than be right has been, mm -hmm. it's just been a thing that I've tried to live by, although I'm very opinionated. And, um, and I've had some doozies of arguments with some folks, but um, in the end, just to step back and say, okay, yeah. I think you're doing pretty All well. about reconciliation. Well, I think I can kind of tie those two things together because that Jesus is the one in and through whom God reconciles the entire cosmos, the entire creation, uh, to put, that puts everything back in order. I do not believe it is possible to resist the reconciling love and mercy of Christ when you truly see him for who he is. I think that people who are rejecting Jesus are not seeing him for who he truly is 
because they're seeing him through some sort of distorted lens. Ironically, I think that the church throughout history in some of its, I'm going to say, lower phases has put out a distorted picture of Jesus. Mm. And there is some, in some, that, that rightly rejected. Some of the presentations of Christ have been rightly rejected. But I guess my thought, there's that one, there's the, there's the uh, passage where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to the glory of God, and that there's this wonderful Greek word, exomologestai, which means that this <laughs> confession is a glad confession, which erupts in joy and celebration from inside the person, not something that's forced, but like a recognition that springs forth from within, from within them. So whatever happens with folks who have grown up in traditions that are different than those who, have, who see Jesus in that way, it's just my faith and belief that they will see him this way and that Jesus is the good shepherd and that he doesn't just search and seek he searches and seeks until he finds. And that, I just think that there is ultimately no way he ever loses once he is seen for who he truly is. And if you, so, when, yeah, and if, just look, read through the New Testament. It was the people that had direct encounters with Jesus that were transformed. True. Uh, so now, can you take that thought and statement and apply it to Dave's question? I, I think we're ready to enter the part where we um, in, in enable community questions and respond to community questions. And one of those, Dave voiced something that someone else had texted to me. You know, what about, what about if I have Jewish friends? What, what about my Muslim friends who don't see Jesus as their person? What do they need to see, get to see, get to experience? And where are they yeah. well, for, And let me just say, for those, for those of you who think you're looking or thinking about this, who may think that I'm some kind of liberal, I would just like to say at this point, pretty darn conservative on this point. <laughs> I am pretty much sticking to the idea that everything, that all of creation itself, if you look at Colossians, comes into existence through Christ and is finally summed up in Christ and then returned to the Father. And so that every... That I don't know if you, if you want to say that we're all finally going to be Christians because that word Christian has attained a lot of baggage along the way, yeah. but we are all going to be persons who have come to see that the love of God has been expressed to us in a pure and reconciling way in the human form of Jesus. And that once we see that, that it will, be, it, it will, not, it will not be a bad thing for anybody to come to that point of view. Now... If a Jewish person, my friend, says, I don't see it that way, then I can say, well, okay, well, how do you see it? What, is your, what are your thoughts about it? And if it comes to pass and some other, you know, sometimes I say, well, I'll cross that spiritual bridge when I come to it. But right now, this is the God of my understanding, the way I put it together in my own heart that makes sense for me. And I just believe that that what I have seen and experienced will ultimately be an experience that everyone will ultimately share together. As far out as that might seem, that's what I'm proposing and believing. And I would add to that that I think Jesus is the, is the human person we saw 
um, as a form of Christ at a specific time and place. I see Christ as a kind of different, slightly different um, being because Christ is who I would say was with God and is God, was, is, and will be. I feel the presence of Richard Rohr. <laughs> Universal Christ. Yeah. I yeah. might have done some reading. Right. Uh, okay. So sorry. Yeah. I did, sorry. Well, that, that whole like, yeah, helps that, yeah. for me as a person who hangs out with a rabbi on the regular. It kind of helps to be yeah. like, yes, I have a sense that I follow. I follow this guy named Jesus. He is my way. Um, my friend Neil does not follow this guy named Jesus, but I have this deep, deep sense that we are responding to the exact same Christ that is in all things. The, the, to, okay, to flat steal the words, the universal Christ yeah, that is yeah. in all things. So, uh, sorry, that was an aside for me personally. Um, I do have another question because we're about to give David a parting shot, um, sort of our last words, but this is, a really good, this is a really good thing if I can do it justice here. So let's say that um, a person who, who accepts the Bible as true and the, and the word of God wants to be a universalist, um, but then there's this problem of the hundreds of verses that talk about death and destruction. So a reference that we were given, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, did you just address this? <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 if you look at the, at the biblical words that have to do with death and destruction, um, there are things that, um, remember the Sodom? Uh-huh. It's completely destroyed. Yet Ezekiel prophesizes the res restoration of, of Sodom. The, in the parable of the prodigal son, when he comes back, the father wants to celebrate because his son was not just lost and found. He was dead. dead. dead yeah. And now he He's is alive. alive again. And so the God of, that we meet in Jesus Christ is, yes, Death is really is the wages, wages of sin. So there, there is a destruction that that leads towards, but I don't believe that it, it, it is necessarily an absolute end. Wow. And I have not, um, I, I do not believe that I have departed from Scripture in my Christian universalism. Uh, I believe that I am paying attention to to the to the to the scriptures in their original languages and context. Now, we can debate about this because there's a great debate between Christian universalists and annihilationists over some of these very destruction, death kinds of passages and how we in interpret these. But it's all people who are paying very close attention to the text, not, not ignoring not not ignoring the text. That's good to say, right? That's it, good to say. I mean, but that lends credence to death, where is your sting? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because if death is a part of the process of the reconciliation to God. And there's lots of types of death and kinds of death and life after death and life after life. Yeah. I, I have a chapter on, on judgment in the book, and I, I know that that's a very important uh, concept. But also, God is love. And so the judgment of God has to, I believe, fit within the love of God. So... The love of God is ultimately the loving judgment of God, which I believe brings restoration. But there can be plenty of destruction and death even along the way. As we've all seen and lived. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so last question from the crowd is, um, what do you say to the folks who say, isn't it awfully convenient? <laughs> 
are you in some sense, and, and you're sort of addressing this, you kind of just did, are, are you, we, those of us who lean into Christian universalism, are we in some ways throwing away the parts that we don't like just to make it a little easier and more palatable? Well, I, I have found out that there are a lot of people that don't like it, that, that this idea that all will finally be reconciled is very upsetting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. As a matter of fact, it was a lot easier for me when I said, God is going to save everybody except those really horrible people we all hate. And And, everybody was like, amen. Yeah, Yeah, we can all agree. I'm from uh, Arkansas. There's this famous saying that in some of the counties, sort of the backwoods counties, that lawyer can stand up in front of uh, the jury and say, I think we all know. There's some people that just need killing. <laughs> I don't know how I've never heard that. I, <laughs> I know a guy who was a lawyer who said that, you know, and, he, oh and, 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 and you know, you can imagine the jury going, mm-hmm. you know, I know, I know <laughs> who those people are. Um, so in a way, it was easier for me when I just said, yeah, God is going to save everybody. That's God wants to save everybody. And God's going to save every, every, all of the good people. And all the people that repent and do all the, all, the, all the things that whatever they need to do, you know, the good, all the good people, wherever they are, God's going to save all the good ones. And the ones that are the bad ones, those are the ones that, that aren't going to be saved. That actually was a much more popular point of view. When I started to say God was going to save everybody, that was inconvenient initially for me because that raised a whole bunch of questions. But it turned out that those were questions that were all that needed to be raised, that were good questions to be raised. So the last thing I would call Christian universalism is convenient, at least in my experience. Um, But it has been something that I have found to be profoundly meaningful and worth talking about and even risking being misunderstood about uh, just because it raises a lot of questions that we need we need to talk about heaven, hell, where this is all headed, who we believe God really is, because I think if, if we don't talk about those th- things, those things don't need to be left on the table. They're hard to talk about, but they're important to talk about. And I think our, our, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is uniquely suited for people to be able to have these types of conversations within community and to agree and disagree and then have communion with each other. Right after. Yeah. <laughs> that was wonderful, and um, that could serve to end us. I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to try to real quickly say a profound thing that I didn't know I was going to say. As you were having that answer, it wasn't convenient for you initially. I had like an actual um, hot tingle feeling all over my body because right now in my life, I'm living a thing, a, a, a related, co- correlated truth to, um, to God saving everybody. That means we can't throw anybody out, right? That means we can't throw anybody away. And it would be a lot more convenient, wouldn't it? When people do legitimately really, really bad things, it'd be very convenient if you didn't have to still be their friend. <laughs> but a different thing is true, um, you know, for those of us who believe that a friend loves at all times and a brother's born for adversity, then there's this other pickle that you're in, right? Which is I don't get to toss somebody out. I can um, distance from a bad situation and and let consequences be consequences, but I don't get to mentally throw anybody out. Yeah, boundaries. Bound- yes. Good. Yeah. 
negating somebody eternally bad. Bad. Yeah, there you go. Okay, we could pretty much end on that. <laughs> okay, so we've got what is good, and then negating anyone eternally equals bad. I think we need so. like a We need a graphic for that, I think, right? Negating mm -hmm. anyone eternally equals bad. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm living that as a friend right now, and it is super difficult. But yeah, I get, I get the power of the words, and I really, I believe it. I believe I don't, I don't get to toss anybody away because mm -hmm. every person is of worth, even though the same people um, in, wrapped up in the same human package, you, you get some good and then sometimes you get some real evil and sickness, right? So that's that, the whole ball of wax. Um, would you, David, is there anything you wanted to say here yeah. to our audience that you didn't get the chance to say? And let me be stern with you and say you have about three minutes. Yeah, the, <laughs> okay, what, what really, it sort of excites me, and it, you know, it's the idea of working out of your spirits, working out of your spiritual discontent. So often, the thing that excites you the most is the thing that frustrates you the most. And one of the things that frustrates me the most is people that feel excluded from Christian community because they feel like there's no place where I can where I can fit in, and that I can't be a Christian because I believe in a God of pure love, and I and I can't find any expression of that within. Christianity. And because of that, they are missing out on what it's like to have Jesus be your Lord and Savior right now and to be able to live in his kingdom right now and to experience fullness of life with him right now. And, and they're missing out on that essentially because of a misunderstanding. And so, um, if people could just be aware that there is, you know, there is, that the Christian tradition is much wider and broader than they might have imagined. Uh, and just because it's narrow in the place where you live, maybe, or in your background, don't, don't, don't let that keep you from widening back the lens, broadening the conversation. And what I tell people is, that if you'll look within the historic Christian tradition, I bet you can find uh, somebody that you're going to have some resonance with. I know that that's been my experience. Sometimes it, sometimes it took me a while to find it, but once I found mm -hmm. it, boy, it was, it was really wonderful. And then, so the Christian tradition is broader than you have imagined, much more inclusive than you might have imagined. And then there are churches that are willing to receive you in ways that you might not have been imagined, which is hard if you have been um, shut out or, um, you know, made to feel unworthy or unacceptable in other settings. So I guess I would just like people to know there, there are churches like First Christian Church in Tyler. I, I think our denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ at large, tries to be uh, tries to manifest these reconciling communities where people are welcome and we can have these um, types of discussions. And so just don't be discouraged if there is some, I don't know, negativity in your area or narrowness. You know, life, I think life is mostly what it is that we focus on. And I have found out that as I have focused my spirituality on the idea that there is a God of invincible love mm. who made this creation in each one of us, and we are all this God's dear children, and that together we are, even though we're stepping on each other's toes and getting in each other's way, and it's a mess, 
that we're all headed to a glorious reconciliation at the end at the end of all of the ages and if i can believe that i can have hope in even the greatest of darknesses even as my as i work on my own continuous spiritual growth i can believe that that i i will not fail forever because god will not allow me to fail forever that god is with me utterly until the end no obstacle will finally be in the way of my ultimate restoration and everybody else's restoration in the world even in the midst of COVID and all of the craziness that's going on, when you get that in your mind, it can be a really beautiful place uh, to be alive. And if people just knew that, that that exists, I would be so happy for that. And so I'm so happy that you are modeling this, that I get to be a part of this first discussion. You're gonna have lots of great discussions, I hope. And I hope that people just find out that, that there is, I think, a place for them um, within the Christian, within the historic, what I'll say, the historic Christian mm-hmm. tradition, just widen the lens back up enough and look at the whole thing, and it's there. Wow. That, wow. You just covered a lot of ground there. Summed up a lot of the points that we have <laughs> yeah. made. Um, I loved It's a Mess, and it's a glorious reconciliation. All, <laughs> it's a both and. The and connects all the things. So there are things that people are afraid to say out loud, and sometimes if we um, say them first for the people, it gives permission the thing that Open Table Faith wants so deeply for you is to feel permission uh, to talk about your faith, to talk with your faith, (laughs) to talk back and forth with God and other people. It's actually a way for you to come to what you already believe. Um, And maybe you're coming into some new beliefs. That's okay. (laughs) We exist to say that's okay. Um, If It's interesting to you to know the place that you're watching right now is where we do worship. Every Sunday at 9.30 in person and online, you can find our contemporary worship service right here. It also might interest you to know um, that that in the the same vein of tonight, which is a little bit non-traditional, out-of-the-box spirituality, we also do a thing in December every year called Blue Christmas. It's a very out-of-the-box Christmas event where it's okay to bring your grief. Uh, It's a night of lament, but also hope because we air what makes us sad and sorrowful and let it vent a little bit so that we can leave lighter and happier. Uh, Blue Christmas is December 16th. It's also in person and online. Those are the sort of ads that I have for you. And now as a minister, uh, I want to end on this blessing that I have written for us all. It's very brief. It's like a prayer that you get to do out loud, eyes open. That's how I understand what a blessing is. So I speak this blessing um, for us and for us all. God be in the hope of our lives. God be in the love that we love at the heart of our hearts, of the ground that we walk, in the air that we breathe. God, make us to know that it is all holy, everything all around. Thanks for being with us. Go and be blessed. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.